When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome back to New Scientist Weekly, your curated selection of the week's science stories. I'm Leah Crane. And I'm Rowan Hooper. Welcome to the show. It's episode 186, and we're recording this on April the 26th. Coming up this week, we're looking at quite a shocking new paper showing just how much the oceans have been warming up. And we've got another water-themed story, but this is fresh water. Uh, We'll be listening to the underwater soundscape of a pond and figuring out what it can tell us. We've got an interview with biologist Matthew Cobb, who has uncovered new documents that shed light on what really happened 70 years ago when Crick and Watson discovered the structure of DNA and the part Rosalind Franklin played. And we're going to hear about how doctors in the UK are using hypnotherapy ahead of operations to reduce the amount of anesthetic that they need. Uh, That does sound like a comment on the resources, (laughs) uh, the lack of resources in the NHS, but it's not. Uh, You'll find out about that later. Joining us on the show this week is environment reporter Madeline Cuff and biomed reporter Claire Wilson. Okay, let's start with a failed space missions layer. Yeah, we've had two really exciting, but ultimately a little bit doomed missions over the course of the last week. Uh, First, there was the attempt by SpaceX to get that Starship rocket into space for the first time, but it did fail after about three minutes when they had to blow the vehicle up. And then (laughs) this week, there was the attempted landing on the moon by the Japanese company iSpace. Yeah, let's talk about that first, because iSpace would have been the first private business to achieve a lunar landing. And they launched the spacecraft on a SpaceX rocket, actually, like a few months ago, wasn't it? And it's just been very trundling towards the moon on a very slow route. Yeah, they took sort of a circuitous route to save some fuel. But what happened, we think, is that it just didn't slow down enough as it was going down to land on the lunar surface and Mm. probably crash landed. It was really quite tense, wasn't it? We were watching it in the office and everyone was watching the the automata going going down, ticking down fast as it sort of plummeted down. And the speed of descent just wasn't coming down fast enough. So, yeah, it didn't look good. Yeah, I remember watching it and it was at like eight kilometers above and it was going like 200 kilometers an hour. (laughs) It felt like there was no way it was going to happen. So the operators lost signal from the spacecraft basically right when it was supposed to touch down. And we got the statement from them that it has been determined that there is a high probability that the lander eventually made a hard landing on the moon's surface. So that is PR speak for it crashed. Uh, It's a bit like the rapid, unscheduled disassembly that we get from SpaceX, from Starship. Yeah. It blew up. 
It's, uh, you know, it all means the same thing. It's it's not doing so good now. But they've already got another lunar mission in the works for next year, and they're going to hopefully apply what they've learned from this one to the next one. Yeah, because it wasn't a one-shot thing. They have got a business plan, a business model, iSpace have, and, and it is basically to be a taxi service to the moon. Uh, one way, taxi service, for NASA, for any businesses or organizations or states that want to ferry stuff up to the moon. And the CEO says they've raised $300 million to cover the first three missions. So as you say, the you know the next one's already in the works. Yeah, and, and he's actually said to me that they don't really care who gets there first. It's about having a sustainable business plan. Yeah. Nevertheless, there are two US companies that are planning to launch lunar landers in the next year who might beat iSpace to the moon. American ones. Yeah, um, Astrobotic and Intuitive Machines. They're both in the US. And what about Starship, going back to that? Because the latest I saw was that the flame trench, so or the, the lack of a trench underneath the launch pad was one of the issues with that thing, uh, you know, getting so damaged on takeoff. Yeah, it seems like they really should have had a flame trench. And I know a lot of engineers, even at SpaceX, had pointed that out quite a long time ago, but they didn't. So the launch attempt really wrecked the launch pad and the explosion sent debris just over a huge radius of their surrounding areas. So it seems, aside from the the actual explosion, it seems a bit worse than we initially knew. Yeah, I mean, they don't mind so much losing the vehicle because they've got, they can make more of those quite quickly and they already have more kind of in the works. But is it going to take a while to, will they have to rebuild a new pad? Yeah, they will have to rebuild a new pad and they'll have to get environmental approval to right. do another launch, which could take quite a long time given uh, what we're seeing about how much debris got spread around the area. Okay, now down here on Earth, let's take a listen to this. Oh, that's nice. It is nice, isn't it? You might not think it's quite so nice when I tell you what it is. <laughs> it's the underwater soundscape of a pond or of, of, of a number of ponds in southwest England. Oh, I think it's even nicer it's in a pond. Mm. Um, mm. So what are all those little clicks that we're hearing? Well, there's diving beetles and water boatmen, which are two of my favourite insects. Um, they are stridulating their genitalia, basically making noises. Um <laughs> And then there's also plants popping um, and, you know, fish, probably fish farting, whatever, you know, loads of other underwater stuff going on under there. It's very fun. But why are people bothering to record all this? <laughs> because it's there. No. Um, <laughs> it, so this is zoologists at the University of Bristol. And they've so they've put hydrophones in these ponds and they found they just wanted to hear what's going on because we just didn't have no idea. Um, and they found these daily acoustic cycles, activity cycles in each pond. So, yeah, night and day. Yeah, I guess that isn't super shocking. <laughs> no, but although, so what I was going to say, the, the strange thing was these, uh, in, in, at night, the insects are making these um, scratching noises that we heard, and that's their, that's this genital scridulation, rubbing them, themselves against their own abdomen to make those scratching noises to attract mates. And these are your very favourite bugs? They are, <laughs> they are. Um, and actually, it's because... They've got giant sperm. This is just incidentally, they've got gigantically long sperm, um, like longer than the, the length of their bodies. It's like coiled up like spaghetti Ew. inside them. It's really, 
really interesting. But look, exactly. in the daytime, <laughs> in the daytime, you get these um, these little bubbles produced by photosynthesis, the oxygen being released from the aquatic plants underwater, and then at night you get all this uh, insect nonsense going on. I'm sure it's all very lovely. I have to admit that the daytime sounds a little nicer to me than the nighttime. Yeah. Um, practically, is there a use for this? Could we use it to assess the health of an ecosystem, something like that? Yeah, that is the idea, like with analogy to what they do in you know rainforests, you can hear and, and use uh, the structure of the sound to assess the, the, you know, the health of the ecosystem. So that's what they want to do here. Let's take a quick break to tell you about a brand new podcast series I've really been enjoying recently. It's from The Conversation and it's called Great Mysteries of Physics. And Miriam Frankel is the host and she's here to tell us about it. Hi, Miriam. Hi, Ren. So Great Mysteries of Physics is a six-part series. And in each episode, we dive deep into a great mystery facing physicists today. So we look at things such as whether time is an illusion, if the multiverse theory has any place in physics, whether reality can really be as bizarre as quantum mechanics suggests, and why physics can't explain life and consciousness. So it's basically a journey from the smallest particle to the boundaries of existence. And along the way, we talk to many leading physicists, which has been interesting as they don't all agree with one another. <laughs> yeah, like a good bun fight. Good. Can't wait to listen to all of them. Thanks, Miriam. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And we're back, and our next story is about something that I always thought was firmly in the territory of alternative medicine, but is apparently now part of mainstream medicine. Hypnosurgery, or people being hypnotized while they have surgery. Claire, this idea has been around for a while, but I never really expected that it would take off like this. Well, yes, but it may not be what you're thinking it is. So you might have heard of those really extreme cases where someone has major surgery without any anaesthetic because they're under hypnosis and they can't feel any pain. Well, sorry, we're not talking about that. <laughs> this is a much less extreme form of hypnosis. It's kind of being used like a top-up of normal anesthesia drugs. So it, it could be used in two different circumstances. One is people who are having a minor medical procedure that is somewhat painful, maybe like a colonoscopy or maybe like a small biopsy where they take a little bit of a tissue sample from you. And people would normally have some sedation to help them get through that. So anaesthetists are using hypnosis to try to reduce people's pain and anxiety. And that is beneficial in itself, but it also helps to reduce the amount of sedative drugs and painkillers that they need. And that's always a good thing. So that's a lot less scary than what I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what's the other circumstance where this is used? This is when people are having major surgery that requires a general anaesthetic. But in the period while they are waiting to be put to sleep, hypnosis can be used to make them feel less anxious. And again, this can reduce the amount of drugs that they need in this preoperative period and make 
the whole thing less distressing. I mean, some people get very anxious about surgery. And I'm really sorry, but I just can't help thinking of, you know, a watch being swung in front of someone's (laughs) face. Like, how do they put someone, how does the hypnosis work? Yeah, so there is a, we're talking about a whole spectrum of things, really. So it does range, there are are no watches involved, but it does range from like a full-on hypnosis script, maybe 15 minutes worth. And that could be a doctor or a nurse talking to them, or it could be the patient playing a recording, which they have been given by the doctor to listen to. And you could describe that as a form of self-hypnosis. And right mm-hmm. at the other end of the spectrum, anaesthetists might just be inserting some short phrases into their general chat with the patient in the preoperative period. You might call these hypnotic suggestions. You might not think of that as you know full-on hypnosis. But if people are in a suggestible state, perhaps because uh, it's helping them get more relaxed, we all know there's a, a, a link between the mind and the body. And if you expect something, you can... It can affect the amount of pain that you mm. feel. Obviously, it can affect the amount of anxiety that you feel. So it might just be using phrases like, each time you breathe out, you're feeling more relaxed. Just interspersed into their normal <laughs> chit-chat with the patient. This is like anesthetic subliminal messaging. They it's actually call it cool. um, something like non-pharmacological sedation. And they are doing this in the NHS, in hospitals in the NHS in some, now. Yeah, in some right hospitals not not every hospital but some anaesthetists are really into it and some are not and other countries too outside the uk but the uk's royal college of anaesthetists has recently released some recordings of these self-hypnosis scripts for people to use just before their operation while they're in the hospital and they can also use them at home if they like yeah you sent a link to that report um and we'll put a link to that in the show notes so there's nothing mysterious going on is there claire i mean it's just this deep breathing, relaxation, suggestive stuff, and that helps people calm down if they are getting anxious or if they're, you know, maybe prone to hyperventilating. Well, that's a great point, Rowan, because that brings us to the million-dollar question about hypnosis. Drumroll, please. What's the million-dollar question? Well, what is hypnosis? Because (laughs) we've been talking about it, and we don't know how it works. We don't know what happens to the brain. We don't know what's going on when somebody is in quotes, hypnotized. So people often think of it as like, you know, entering this special trance-like state. As Rowan says, you know, maybe some kind of a showman has been swinging a watch on a chain. But of course, it doesn't have to be anything that dramatic. And these days, it usually isn't. In this context, all that's happening is the patient is becoming very relaxed, slowing their breathing. And this makes any suggestions given during this period have more weight. And have you listened to any of these recordings, Claire? Oh, yes, I have. Um, so I have to say they were really relaxing and um, it, they, they did warn you at the beginning of them, don't don't play these if you're about to um, drive or this operate heavy machinery. So even when I was just speaking with one of my interviewees by Zoom and he started telling me some of these key phrases that I mentioned. You nodded off. He, uh, I didn't, but he couldn't help himself. He just started speaking in this very, very relaxing voice to me, very slow wow. uh, tone. And I just noticed it was an extremely relaxing experience. He had a very good technique. Oh, I bet he did. <laughs> um, did he say things like, you feel like subscribing to New Scientist now. <laughs> Oh, Rowan. Go ahead and press that button. <laughs> press it. <laughs> Shame on you, Rowan. No. <laughs> All 
All right, we're going to talk about climate change now and the amount of global heating we're seeing. Maddie, you reported a few weeks back now about a spike in ocean temperatures. And now a paper has just come out showing that over the last 15 years, Earth has accumulated almost as much heat as it did in the previous 45 years, with most of that extra energy going into the oceans. And that's actually really quite scary, isn't it? Can you take us through it, Maddie? Yeah, I'm sort of here for your, I'm the resident scary stories expert here, it seems, on the pod. Um, So we've known for a while that the world's oceans are absorbing a vast amount of heat on our behalf. So that helps to, to hold back climate change impacts that we're seeing on the ground. And this new paper quantifies exactly how much heat that is. And the results are pretty staggering. So Over the last 30 years, about 89% of the excess heat that's accumulated in the Earth system as a whole has been stored in our oceans. And as you say, the study found that the pace of this heat accumulation is accelerating. So over the past 15 years, the Earth has accumulated almost as much heat as it did in the previous 45 years. And really, the, the outcome is that it's the oceans bearing the brunt of this. I mean, the ocean, the oceans will just evaporate if it gets too hot, right? They'll they, they just keep absorbing heat until they're gone. But like, is there a limit, though, to m- how much carbon dioxide they can soak up? Yeah, so the, the kind of absorption of heat is linked to the ocean's ability to absorb CO2. So as, a, as well as absorbing this excess heat, the oceans absorb around 30% of human-caused CO2 emissions. And that's what has meant that climate impacts on the land have been less pronounced than they would otherwise be without the oceans. But the problem is that as waters get warmer, they have less ability to absorb CO2. And so if the oceans are warmer and therefore take up less CO2 in the future, more would accumulate in the atmosphere. And then we would start to see climate impacts above ground escalating. And the slightly scary thing is that scientists don't know exactly when that threshold will be breached. But the fear is that we are now starting to push some of these systems far beyond their natural capacity. And and as you say, I reported a few weeks ago about sea surface temperatures reaching record highs. And this is kind of another sign, really, that we've got some warning lights flashing red on our climate dashboard. And we've got uh, an El Nino system about to kick in as well, haven't we, on top of all of this? Yes. So to recap... El Niños and La Niñas are going to be pretty big news in the climate world this year. They're basically terms used to describe fluctuations in the Earth's climate system. And it's all driven by changing sea surface temperatures in the equatorial Pacific, which have global implications for for weather systems around the world. And so for the last three years, we've been in a La Niña state, which is where temperatures globally are generally lower than average. But As of this spring, we are swinging towards an El Nino, which is much more likely to bring higher sea temperatures and severe heat waves in many parts of the world. So the crucial thing is that El Ninos vary in strength. And if we have a strong El Nino, that could have pretty severe impacts. The current forecasts are that we've got about a 40% chance that the El Nino that's expected to come later this year could be a strong El Nino. And when you combine the impacts of that with the background levels of warming that we've already caused by human activity, it could mean that 2024 will be the year that we see average warming beyond 1.5 degrees. So basically, keep a close watch on how strong this El Nino might be later this year. That's what everybody will be looking at. Right. I mean, oh, my God, because we haven't even got that 
that much warming yet. But if you look at the well, like look at the heat wave in Asia at the moment. We've had forty five point four degrees in Thailand, forty five in Myanmar, forty four and a half in India, over forty in China. Dozens of national heat records have been broken across Asia, and uh, you know people have died in Mumbai. Well, it's really getting to that point where living and working outside is becoming very dangerous in uh, across the large parts of the world. Yeah, and as we speak, we're seeing record temperatures in Spain. So Spain is expected to see temperatures of 40 degrees in some parts of the country later this week, which, I mean, for April is is pretty crazy. And I think taken together, I mean, this represents the kind of destabilisation of the global climate system, really, with starting to see how when you push these systems to their limit, things start to fall wildly out of whack and it does raise some pretty serious societal questions, really, about how we're going to deal with these impacts. So if you look at what's happening in, in Asia and, and how difficult things like going to work outside is going to be in the future, this has got really mm. severe implications for, for everything from migration policies to, to public health and the global economy. And what's particularly worrying is the fact that some of these extremes are stronger than climate models would suggest they should be at this level of warming. So there's a mismatch between actually what we're seeing on the ground and and what we would expect to see at this level of warming. I mean, it's weird because having talked about the fact that 2024 could be the first year that we see warming over 1.5 degrees, I, I wrote a piece a few months ago thinking about what would happen when we have the first year over 1.5 degrees of warming and how it would be a kind of real watershed moment in the Mm. climate debate around how we respond to that and whether we kind of just throw the targets out of the window. And I I said in that piece that it's really important to remember that even if we see record-breaking warming next year, and that might be beyond 1.5 degrees, that doesn't mean that global climate pledges should be discarded what ties climate pledges to reality is whether we've seen that average rise in temperature sustained over a number of decades. So just because 2024 might be a really bad year for climate warming doesn't mean that kind of all is lost. And and this extreme weather that we're seeing in the last few weeks is a reminder of, you know, what we have to avoid, really. Okay, all is not lost, but I do need some hypnosis now, I think. Thanks, Maddie. Now, it's 70 years since the publication of three landmark papers in Nature on the structure of nucleic acids, and in particular, the famous paper on the structure of DNA by James Watson and Francis Crick. Now, some call this discovery the most important intellectual innovation in human history, and Watson and Crick, along with Maurice Wilkins, got the Nobel Prize for it. Now, as listeners to New Scientist Weekly, you'll know that the name missing from that list of men is Rosalind Franklin, And you may have heard that she was basically swindled out of her share of the credit for the discovery of the structure of DNA. But a piece in Nature by biologist Matthew Cobb and historian Nathaniel Comfort this week sheds new light on what really happened. And Matthew's here to tell us about it. Matthew, thanks for joining us. What have you found out about the Rosalind Franklin story? And and how have you found out something new about such a (laughs) well-known story? Well, we weren't expecting to. That wasn't our plan, right? So yeah. we we thought we knew everything about what happened, which wasn't quite the version that you've uh, presented. But no. that version that you've just described is indeed the popular version. You know, there's a Twitter joke. What did Watson and Crick discover in 1953? Rosalind Franklin's data. Boom, boom. Yeah. Which is yeah. a good joke, but that's not actually what happened. So what we were able to do 
by going into the Franklin archives and then by rummaging around in various other places was to discover that for a start, what we already knew reinforces what we already knew that this photograph 51, which is what appears on your 50p coins, if you're lucky yeah. enough to have a Rosalyn Franklin commemorative uh, 50p coin, that story, which is told by Jim Watson in The Double Helix, is yeah. absolute bunkum. According right. to that version, Watson sees this image and immediately realizes double he- that DNA is some kind of uh, helix, and that really excites him. Now, the image doesn't actually tell you much beyond the fact that it was a helix, which everybody accepted all around the world, was fairly convinced that DNA was some kind of helix. So the story is very dramatic. It's told that way in order to make the book more exciting uh and it's got which kind it is of, isn't it I mean, absolutely I, I remember reading it as as a as a student and it's a gripping ah, story that, isn't it so you were exactly the target audience right so what what's <laughs> who's watson was writing for were high school students and university students trying to inspire them to tell them that science could be exciting and interesting and what better way to make Mm. it interesting than to have a kind of bad boy element. So Watson portrays himself as carrying out this uh, underhand bit of theft of Franklin's data, but this is actually not what happened. And Mm. one of the things we've discovered is a letter from somebody in Franklin's lab to Crick in January 1953, basically implying that she knows that uh, various bits of data are already with the Cambridge group, and this was done quite legitimately, and she's quite okay with that, which was a big surprise to us. But we knew, this all makes sense, because we knew already that after the double helix, Franklin and Watson and Crick ended up being very friendly. She exchanged her data with them throughout the 53 to 58 when she died. So, you know, we knew that they were friendly, and this all helps to make sense of a relationship which was not at all the kind of conflictual, competitive, rather dismissive attitude that Watson portrays in The Double Helix. I think the other point you've got to realise is that DNA was not DNA at the time. The role of DNA was not clear. It was not accepted. There was some evidence that it was the genetic material in bacteria. There was weaker evidence that it was genetic material in viruses, one species in each case. But that was it. And those views were contested. So when Franklin was working on this, and when Watson and Crick were working on it, it was another molecule. It Mm. was perhaps very exciting, but perhaps not. Until the mid-1970s, when it was actually used to make insulin and stuff and genetic engineering began to change things. So for 20 years, it was just something that people knew about, but actually had no immediate consequence. But there must have been an intuition in Watson's and maybe Crick's head that it was DNA and there was something about DNA that was the genetic material. Is that not their genius? No, no, absolutely not. It it was the genius of somebody called Oswald Avery who did the experiments in bacteria in 1944 that showed that in that one species of bacteria, genes appeared to be made of DNA. But that view was widely contested in the scientific community. Watson, according to his telling in 1968, was obsessed by it. Crick contested Mm. this and Mm. said that he doesn't think that they were anywhere, anywhere near so fixated on DNA, as Watson later made out. I mean, you've got to remember, in 19, for most of 1952, Watson did nothing 
He wasn't supposed to be working on DNA. He was supposed to be working on viruses, which he did. He went on holiday. He did all sorts of stuff. He wasn't yeah. kind of single-mindedly focusing on this thing. So what we should take away from this new work that you, you're uncovering is that the discovery of the structure of DNA was a more collegiate enterprise than we might otherwise have thought. Absolutely. The first, one of the first public presentations of the double helix was done by Rosalind Franklin at the Royal Society two months later in June 1953. And if you look at the little program, which I picked up on eBay for $5.99 the other day, then it says very, it's signed, this description of their presentation at the exhibition is signed by all seven authors of the three nature papers. Mm. And you know, that's the only time that happened, but it shows that it was not seen as simply Watson and Crick's thing. And we also found a, an unpublished article from Time magazine, which presented the discovery in exactly this way as a collegial mm. thing. And of course, let's just say one more thing about Rosalind Franklin, because obviously, you know, she died tragically young, but she before she died, she did really important work on viruses, didn't she, after all the DNA business? Absolutely. People just don't know about that. But that is what is mentioned on her gravestone. That was what was highlighted in the New York Times obituary, that she worked on first on plant viruses like Jim Watson, trying to understand how viruses work. And then in the last year or so, she was working on polio. Now, that was much more important, much more practical than studying this molecule, which at the time and for the next 20 years had no real consequence for the real world. Yeah. Thanks, Matthew. That's Matthew Cobb there from the University of Manchester. And I should say Matthew's writing a biography of Crick and Nathaniel Comfort's writing one of Watson. But Matthew's latest book is The Genetic Age, Our Perilous Quest to Edit Life. That's all for this week. Thank you to our guests, Madeline Cuff and Claire Wilson. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Leah Crane. And I'm Roan Hooper. Do subscribe to our show, tell all your friends about it, and we'll see you soon. Bye for now. Bye. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.